Call us old-fashioned, but we still believe in miracles. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of John, the fourth chapter. And as you're turning, Tom, is your mom's surgery still scheduled for tomorrow? Tom. Oh, I'm looking over here. Tom Lobato. I knew that. Where's Tom? He's not here. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. Tom Lobato's. Pray for Tom's mother's surgery tomorrow. Um, Life-threatening. It could be, it's very, very serious, and so pray for Tom. I'm sorry. Um, I want us to uh, read scripture, and then I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for this surgery as well, because uh, it's, uh, um, when a loved one is going through a potential surgery like this, it's very, very devastating. It's very, very overwhelming, and so it's, it's really a big deal for them. So I'm going to ask you to pray for them as well. So let me read this passage of scripture in John chapter number 4. Verses 1 through 7. When, therefore, the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, Jesus therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Now we're going to look at the conversation that Jesus had with this woman as we, uh, as we look at the woman at the well. I want us to bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your love, and I thank you for this opportunity to share the truth that you laid on my heart. And Lord, thank you for the love that Jesus had for this woman. Lord, challenge us with it. And I pray for Tom's mother this morning, Lord, that you might be uh, with her tomorrow as she goes into surgery. I pray, Lord, that your will be accomplished, and that you will give grace to the family. Thank you that we can call upon the great physician. Thank you, Lord, that you have all this in your plan, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have here the uh, very familiar story of Jesus and the woman in the well. If I were to go around and ask you to tell me the story, most of you could give me the, the, the basics of the story. And so when I was led to preach the different aspects of John that are unique to John. Things that are not found in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I came to this, and I, part of me said, but Lord, we already know this. Why, why would we have to spend time here? It's so familiar. And then he rebuked me as I began to study it, began to find out there's a whole lot here I was unaware of. And so I want us to, to look at this story through the lens of the love of Christ. And when I realized what Jesus had actually done, I was, I was so humbled and quite frankly shamed. Because, let me, let, me share, let me share the story. The first thing I want us to notice here in, uh, in verses 1 through 4, and let me read them again. 
When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, John's gospel records much of what Jesus did in his early ministry. The other ones don't. The other ones basically take off running with the birth of Christ and then uh, after, the, after the ministry of John. But here we see them simultaneously ministering. John's ministry, Jesus' ministry. And here Jesus is ministering, baptizing folks at the same time that John is. So John has his ministry in winning many, many people to, to repentance and to a coming kingdom. And Jesus is preaching, and many, many people are getting baptized under Jesus' preaching, uh, G, uh, preaching of the Lord Jesus and, and him being the Messiah. But when it became known to the Pharisees that Jesus was actually having a greater response than John, instead of confronting them, Jesus said, fellas, let's go back to, let's go back to Galilee. Jesus, in verse number 2, it says, Though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. Let's go back. Before we raise a ruckus, which is not time yet, let's just go back to Galilee. Notice verse 4. It says, after Jesus made the decision to go from Judea back up north to Galilee, he must needs go through Samaria. Now, at first glance, it seems well, profound. Well, of course, because Samaria is between where he was in Judea and in Galilee. So he must needs go through Samaria. The shortest route from Judea to Galilee is right through Samaria. But the problem is Jews typically did not go that way. They didn't like the Samaritans. They looked down on the Samaritans. The Samaritans, as far as they were concerned, were literally called dogs. They called them dogs. And the deportations of the beginning in Assyria, the, the northern kingdom, the, 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 the ten tribes up north, many of them were deported. They were captured and deported out of the land. And as such, they left all that region with no people to maintain the crops, to maintain everything. And so... A serious king re, began repopulating them with heathens. So heathens from other lands came and began living there and dwelling with the Jews that were still there. And in the process of time, those, those Jews, many of them, and the heathen began intermarrying. And their offspring, obviously, were no longer full-blooded Jews. Well, two of the to the Jew, the Jewish mentality was such that they honored their pedigree, their lineage. They valued that. They wanted to be able to say, I am from so-and-so, from so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, all the way back so they could trace it back to Abraham. That was a big deal to them. And now if they intermarried, they were violating not only the commandments, but they were violating their pedigree. So you can imagine how those, how those pure-blooded Jews felt about these half-breeds up here. They looked down on them. And there became great animosity between the two, and there was much hatred. And so typically, a Jew from Judea, if they were going to travel to Galilee, they went way out of the way to circumvent that, 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 that region called Samaria. But Jesus went there on purpose. That Jesus 
boy, about the time you get this guy figured out, he does something crazy. His disciples are saying, Lord, what are you doing? What are you going through Samaria? What are you thinking? It's so much better for us just, just to go around. We don't want to go through Samaria. We don't like those folks. They dress funny. They talk funny. They look down on us. They say some very unkind things there. In verse number five, then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son and Joseph. The word Sychar here, I looked it up, literally translated means drunkenness. Sychar, or known as the city of drunkenness. Well, I don't know. At the time, were there a bunch of reprobates there? A, a, a liquor store in every corner. My folks, my folks, my kids recently traveled and moved down to South Carolina. And I'd heard this before, but I didn't really experience it firsthand. They said, Dad, you won't believe it. There's a Baptist church in every corner down here. It's incredible. When we moved down there, all of a sudden, the farther down south you got, the more Baptist churches you see. And sure enough, in their area, if you don't like this Baptist church, no problem. There's a hundred more you can check out. So it's not a, not a, not a problem. But not in Sychar. In Sychar, alcohol was a big deal. City of drunkenness. But I wonder, when I started looking into it, if it was because of the, the, the current citizens of Sychar, or perhaps it was from an earlier group that it got its name. In Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 1, it says, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. Isaiah 28, 3. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet. What are we talking about here? Well, Ephraim was one of the names of the northern ten tribes. Generically speaking, Israel, they called it Ephraim. Here we learn that they're being judged for their drunkenness. So many years before, it's very likely that Sychar was inhabited by a bunch of Ephraimites, or northern kingdom, and they were drunkards. And so they received the name of the town under the previous Israelites who were there. Not the current ones. Jesus went to the city called drunkenness. Now think about that. Jesus, God's holy son. Jesus, the one who never sinned, purposed to go to the city of drunkenness. Now, you think that's wise counsel, Jesus? To be going to a place where it's called drunkenness? Dear Lord, Lord, that's, that's really not smart. And we try to avoid places like that. We don't go to that part of town. Lord, we, we, we stay away from those, those, those kind of places, Lord. What are you doing? Taking us to a very city with the reputation. In fact, it's called drunkenness. Well, we learn in verse number 6 that Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Well, I, I looked this up just to just understand what's talking about. And local tradition holds that that particular well was about 100 feet deep. And it wasn't your typical well. It was more like a cistern. A cistern is a, a collector of water. 
It's not, uh, not being supplied by a spring. It's just water in the rocks filtering through, uh, end up in that cistern, so it becomes a holding place of water. So you take, go to the faucet, and you fill a glass with water. And you put it off the side in your cabinet, and you come back to it about a month later. You see, this is a holding place for water. You think that water is going to taste any different than water that comes right out of the faucet or bottled water? I'm going to say yes. It's going to taste different. It's not going to be fresh. It's not going to have a fresh taste to it. So, so the well here we're talking about is more of a cistern, about 100 feet deep, we're, we're told. And uh, Jesus here displayed his humanity. He's tired. He's thirsty. Why? Because Jesus was human. At the same time, Jesus was all God. He was all man. Explain that. Well, I have a hard time explaining it, but I believe it. He was all man, which means his body, his physical body, felt the sensations that you and I feel. He was thirsty. Out in that hot, hot, hot uh, uh, mid-eastern sun, it was hot out there. And he was tired. His body was aching from being on the road for so long. His muscles were tired. Sit down. Jesus, the Son of God, got tired? Yeah, he's human. And in the human body, he sat down. What time was it? Well, it says it was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour. Well, in Jewish time, that would put it about noon. Roman time which is similar to ours, would be 6 p.m. Now, we're not told exactly which clock <laughs> was being used here when John wrote this, but there's a good likelihood that John, is, who, who is now, because we said before, is communicating his thoughts to Gentiles. He's wanting to take the gospel and put it in a form that the Gentiles understand. So there's a good likelihood that he gave this time in Roman time making it about 6 p.m., the end of the, the day. His journey is over. No wonder he's there. Why is this lady here in the first place? Well, at the end of the day, she's getting the water necessary to prepare for the next day. 6 p.m. makes sense. Likely around 6 p.m., he sat down on the wall. A woman, in verse number 7, then cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith, unto her. It means he spoke to her. He said, well, of course, he talked to her. He's nice. <laughs> um, what we don't understand, many of us, is, is the culture difference in Jesus' time between a man and a woman. The culture was so incredibly different then than it is now. It says, he, he saith unto her, Give me to drink. Well, in that culture, women were responsible for bringing water back to their homes. Water's not light. <laughs> My wife doesn't bring the water back home. When, I, when we go out and get these uh, bottles of water, guess who gets the task of bringing the water in? I say, sweetheart, go get the water. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I do that. I do that. I bring the water in. But not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the women were tasked, or in this day, the women were tasked for bringing the water. 
They'd go down to the well and they'd fill these water pots. Water pots were not light. They were filled with water. And, I, and we, but sometimes we'll get a, a gallon jug and bring a gallon or bring a couple of them in. Now think about what a gallon jug of water is like. Well, how long would a gallon of water last if that's the only water you have is that water for bathing, for cooking, eating, drinking? Well, you're going to need more than a gallon. And so they fill these water pots full, and that's going to weigh a lot of weight. And this woman is bringing this back, so she comes to the well. But there's some reasons why Jesus' discussion with this woman was unusual. And I want to name them based upon what little study I did in the culture of this time. First of all, the Jewish rabbis discouraged religious instruction to women. The rabbis said it is inappropriate for us to teach women scriptural truth. You say, well, that offends me. <laughs> I think it offended the Lord too. But that's what the rabbis decreed. We will not teach women scriptural truth. That's interesting that when Christianity came along, when Jesus came and began preaching and teaching um, under Paul's ministry, do you know who the first convert in Europe was? It was Lydia, a woman. Interesting. It sounds to me like under Christianity, God says it is important to teach the women scriptural truth. I like that. So first of all, the rabbis discouraged it. Secondly, she was a Samaritan. A Samaritan. The Bible says an alien from the commonwealth of Israel. An alien. She's no longer part of Israel. Why? Because she's a Samaritan, a half-breed, one of those heathens. Ephesians 2.12 says that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Samaritans, like I said, were the result of mixed marriages of Jews with foreigners brought in from Babylon and surrounding regions to repopulate the northern kingdom after Assyria deported most of the Jews. They became a race of their own and were disdained and disowned by their full-blooded, proud Jewish brethren. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim and worshipped there. So looking at a picture, um, uh, Sychar sat on a, on a hill at the base of this big mountain, Mount Gerizim. And on top of Mount Gerizim is where they built an altar and they worshiped their God on Mount Gerizim. She was poor. She was poor. We make an, a, a deduction that she was poor because in ancient times, like I said, drawing water was done by women of rank. All women, even those of rank, carried the water. But by Jesus' day, it was only done typically by servants and by the poor by the women who were servants and the poor. Genesis 24, 11, And he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. In Exodus 2, 16, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Next thing, reason that why it was unusual that Jesus would be having this conversation with this Samaritan woman was because as the story's be going to reveal, she was an adulteress. What is Jesus thinking? 
going to a city of drunkenness, talking to a woman, talking to a Samaritan woman. And now to find out this woman was an adulteress. The city of Samaria was about seven miles beyond Sychar. She came to the well from Sychar. Verse number eight. As this is going on, it says, for his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. So here Jesus is left alone. His disciples went to the city to buy meat. Jesus is alone speaking to a woman of Samaria who was an adulteress, who came from the city of drunkenness. <laughs> Do you see any potential conflicts of interest here as far as the disciples are concerned? Jesus sent his disciples into the town of Sychar to buy food. You say, well, no big deal. Well, yeah, it is a big deal. You see, under their regulations, the Jews were permitted to buy from the Samaritans. They could buy food from them, but they could accept nothing from them as a gift. Such an act was comparable to eating pork. That's how big a violation it was. You could not accept anything from them. It was, it was, it was dirtied. Verse number 9, Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She knew. What's this man doing talking to me? Jews don't talk to people like us. Jews, men, don't talk to women. What's the deal? There's something going on here, and you have to wonder if she doesn't have an attitude a little bit as she's talking to this man. So with that in mind, Jesus here dealt with a foreigner. He dealt with a foreigner. How did she know he was a Jew? Well, he was from Galilee, and very likely his accent betrayed him. Also, his features were uniquely Jewish. She was from an intermarried inter, uh, group, so she had different kinds of features. And Jesus' robe very likely had the customary fringes around the bottom, signifying that he was Jew. So here we have a story about Jesus, the Son of God, meeting this lady who by all accounts from everybody around Jesus would say, we got to avoid her like the plague. We've got to stay away from her because she's, she is, she's not the right kind of person. We've we got to stay away from her. But, but Jesus purposed. He purposed and made a beeline straight for her. What's Jesus thinking? Well, here's something that I found out interesting. In the Bible, there are some remarkable encounters with Samaritans. Remarkable ones. Remember the Good Samaritan? Luke chapter 10, verse 30. I'll read you just a few verses here. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. 
So the Jewish priest came by and saw this man that was wounded near death. Looked at him and went right on by. A Levite, another Jew, came by. Saw this man wounded as to death. Saw him and, hmm, I got more important things to do. After all, look what time it is. But a Samaritan, one of these half-breeds, one of these that the Jews looked down on, saw him and stopped. And the Bible says, cared for him, even taking money out of his own pocket to pay for his needs, to pay for his lodging. And he told the innkeeper, whatever needs he has, I will pay for. The Samaritan did that. Another account is found in Luke chapter 17, verse 12. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers. Jesus had some unusual associates. Here Jesus mates ten lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Why? Because lepers could not get close. They had to stay away. As they came into public, they had to holler out, Leper! Leper! To keep people away. When they saw Jesus, they stayed away, but they hollered out, Jesus, have mercy on us! And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. It came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. How many were healed? Ten. How many turned back? One. And that one fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. Interesting. Interesting. I think Jesus is teaching us something about the Samaritans. Maybe Jesus sees something in the Samaritans no other Jew sees. You think? So what did Jesus say to this woman? This woman, this Samaritan, this half-breed, this adulteress. Verse, verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. So Jesus introduces a topic here of living water living water to this Samaritan. Well, now, understand the, the context. He's standing at a well. She is at the well to draw water. He's thirsty, so water, living water. Okay, this all ties together. If you would have just asked, he would have given you living water. This gift of God, if thou knewest the gift of God, the gift of God. In my mind, when I read that, I'm thinking, that rings a bell, the gift of God. Where have I heard that before? The gift of God. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And Jesus here said, if thou knewest the gift of God, this phrase is frequently used in the New Testament, often referring to salvation. Then it talks about living water. If, if you knew 
the, the gift that God has for you. He would have given you living water. Now, she's got to be thirsty, too. Tired? The work ahead, she's got to carry that big old heavy water pot? Living water refers to a better, more satisfying water. You see, the, 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 the term living literally means running water. It refers more to a spring. You see, what she was doing was drawing water from a cistern, just caught stagnant water. It was okay to use. It was drinkable. There's nothing poisonous about it, but it wasn't a fresh water like going to a spring. And Jesus said, if you would have only asked, he would have given you living water, running water, a spring water, this refreshing water. So she said, oh, okay, well, I like that. I like spring water is so much better. Running water is so much better. If you knew, Jesus said, what God had to give and who I am, you would have asked me for refreshing spring water. In fact, he was asking if you knew about the gift of salvation, the true living water from God, and that the one sent to provide that salvation is the one speaking to you right now. You surely would have asked him for that gift and he would have given it freely to you. So Jesus entered into a living dialogue with this woman. Don't forget who she is. Don't forget her background. Don't forget that she's a woman and Jesus, a Jew, is talking to a Samaritan. Don't forget any of that. As Jesus said, give me to drink. And she says, why are you talking to me? Why are you talking to me? In essence, she's saying, you know I don't deserve that. You're supposed to look down on me. We don't get along with each other. And Jesus said, oh, dear woman, if you only knew the gift of God. And who is talking to you right now? you would have begged for that living water, that spring water that only he can give. Verse 11, the woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? There may be a touch of sarcasm here in her response. I read that typically at these wells, just out in nowhere, there's these wells, there was, some, there was sometimes a, a leathern bucket that was there, but no rope. A person had to bring their own rope to tie to the bucket to drop in the well. And here Jesus is, no rope. No rope, no bucket. She says, how in the world were you thinking you were going to get water? Here you talk about living water, giving me living water. You can't even get your bucket down in the, in the well. How can you give me living water? You see where her mind is stuck. Jesus is talking about something so far better, but her mind is stuck in the practical, in the, in the right now. He's got her thinking. Verse number 12, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Interesting that the woman identified Jesus as having similar roots as did she. Our father your father and my father, we have roots that go all the way back to Jacob. And Jacob is the one that made this well. Verse 13, 
Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. So perhaps he's looking at the water pot. And perhaps it's full of water now. And he points to it. Whosoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus presents here the difference between the cistern water in the well and living water. It was likened to spring-fed water, which is springing up to everlasting life. The water Jesus was offering her was everlasting life. Did she get it? Did she get the truth? Well, verse number 15, The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Boy, if I could have this kind of water, I wouldn't have to make the journey every day to this well and carry this heavy water pot full of water all the way back home. If you would just give me water that wouldn't run out, water where I didn't, wasn't thirsty anymore, that'd be awesome. I'd love that. But of course, she is being facetious. So it's time for Jesus to get personal. How much does Jesus know about you? How much does Jesus know about the Samaritan? So here Jesus is in, in, out, out in the boonies and comes across this well. He purposed to go that very direction because he knew she was going to be there. This Samaritan woman with a very questionable past, he knew she was going to be there. And his heart went out to her. In verse number 16, Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. You see, Jesus knew this woman had a sin problem. As does everyone. She would have to be confronted with her sin before she could repent and trust Christ. Verse number 17, The woman answered and said, I have no husband. <laughs> and Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. She was right. The woman's first response was to deflect his question, saying, I have no husband. Just like our pride always wants to deflect when conviction comes our way over our sin. It wasn't that bad. My sin wasn't that bad. My sin wasn't as bad as so-and-so's. After all, it really wasn't a, a sin. Verse 18, Jesus said, For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. How did Jesus know that? Jesus is God. He knew that. Jesus confronted her directly about her sin, and she came under conviction. Contrary to the devil's lies, Jesus knows every sin we commit. Like Jesus did in that day, the Holy Spirit does today. He convicts the sinner of sin. So Jesus identified her specific sin. Up until this time, I think there's an air in which the lady's just playing with him. 
this perfect stranger is talking to a woman. That's an uncomfortable situation anyway. And he starts talking about the gift of God and, and, and living water, and, and in her mind, spring water. Well, this isn't spring water. She knows his cistern water. He, he, he said, though, he said, if you just ask, give me this living water. Okay, fella, give me this uh, living water. <laughs> and Jesus said, uh, go have your husband come. Hmm? Hmm? Well, I have, I have no husband. He said, you're right. You had five. And the one you're living with right now is not even your husband. You suppose that caught her attention? You see, this, this conversation that Jesus has been having thus far, in her mind, is all superficial. Just chit-chat. But all of a sudden, this perfect stranger knows exactly who she is. Knows exactly what her sins are. This man somehow knows who she is. Verse 19, The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. Very perceptive woman. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. I laughed when I, when I, when I considered this. First of all, the woman began to suspect something unusual about this man. There's something different about this man. You must be a prophet. She tried to direct the conversation away from her sin to the differences of their religion. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, whereas you all worship over there in Jerusalem. In other words, you have your religion and I have mine. See? You have your God, I have mine. What was she doing? She was deflecting away from the current conviction. That's what she was doing. You handle sin your way and I have mine. She sought safety in her religion. Isn't that interesting? She ran to safety in what she believed. So now we've got a problem because there, there's no commonality of religion. You ever talk to somebody and they say, well, I don't even believe in God. Oh, oh, I guess we can't talk any longer. We walk away. There's no commonality. Well, I don't believe that Bible. Oh, can't talk anymore, right? We just walk away. Well, I don't believe that Jesus actually came alive again. Oh, I'm so sorry. I do. I guess we can't talk any longer. So when Jesus said, we've got different religions. You've got your religion. I've got mine. Jesus said, oh, no. We don't have commonality. There's nothing we can talk about. Have a nice day, lady. Sorry I bothered you. Is that what he did? Verse 21. Jesus saith unto her, woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Notice he did not get in an argument with her. He did not start arguing about the differences. He looked beyond the differences to find where they were common. There's coming a day where you're not going to worship the Father there and we're not going to worship the Father there coming a day, he said. Instead of arguing the point, he spoke again of their commonality, that where they worship would soon become irrelevant. Verse 22, ye worship not, Jesus said, what ye, 
I'm sorry, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. This could be stated, you don't really know the one you're worshiping. Up there on Mount Gerizim, so you're praying to God, you really don't know him. We know the one we're worshiping. For salvation is from the Jews. You see, the Lord Jesus was born into this world as a Jew. Salvation is of the Jews. It came through the Jews. So is Jesus saying, okay, I can't talk to you anymore? Is he starting to give truth? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Verse 23, but the hour cometh, Jesus said, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Though Jews and Samaritans place much importance on the place of their worship, and this was significant, Judaism was based upon going to Jerusalem, to the temple in Jerusalem, and worshiping there. Jesus said, there's coming a day. There's coming a day. Worship will not be a place. It will be a spirit. It's a personal matter from the heart. In that God is a spirit, he must be worshipped spiritually and according to biblical truth. And then, he, and then he gave her a surprise. Verse 25, the woman saith unto him something I found really fascinating. She said, I know that Messiah, or Messiah, cometh. I know the Messiah is coming. I know that Messiah is coming. Now understand, this woman, Samaritan, worships Mount Gerizim, but some, there, are very, there are many similarities in their worship. And one thing that she knew in her worship, though she had not been studying the scriptures, there were some generalities of their worship that she knew. And one thing she was hanging on to for dear life, one day, one day the Messiah is coming. And she, as a Samaritan, looked for the day of the Messiah. I know Messiah is coming, she said, which is called Christ. When he's come, he will tell us all things. He's going to answer all these questions for us. He's going to stop all the debates, she said. He's going to solve the problems. He is the deliverer, and I know the Messiah is coming. Jesus saith unto her in verse 26, I that speak unto thee am he. <laughs> I know Messiah's coming. I am he. She acknowledged that she knew Messiah would come and reveal truth, and Jesus revealed to her his identity. It's interesting because it was very unusual for Jesus to reveal his identity. He had not been doing that in Judea. Why? Because I believe it was because of the spirit of darkness, spiritual blindness that was still on Jerusalem, on, on, on God's people in Judea. There was still this veil of darkness. He did not reveal his identity openly there. But where is Jesus? <laughs> He's not... In Judaism, 
He's in the land of Samaritans. And there he freely identifies himself as the Messiah. In Isaiah 6, 9, And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. What people? God's people. They had rejected God so many times that finally God put a veil of blindness over them so they as a nation could not turn. But Jesus wasn't under that veil when he was speaking to the Samaritan. So what we see, the story began with a purpose. He came with a purpose. He could have gone around and circumvented all that land of Samaria, and he wouldn't have even messed with this woman. He wouldn't have had accusations from anybody seeing him talking with a woman, a Samaritan woman, an adulteress. But he made a decision to purposely go to that well, knowing that this woman would be there. And we see him vindicated in his purpose. His purpose was unusual. He first of all went to an undesirable location. He went to a city called Drunkenness. Where did Jesus find you? What city were you in? I don't mean the specific name of the city, but what kind of a lifestyle were you in when Jesus found you? And what would have happened if Jesus would say about you, I could never associate with somebody like you. You're one of those half-breeds. You're one of those from that side of the tracks. I, I could never associate with you. But Jesus went to that location. As Jesus does, because God so loved the world. He went on purpose to an undesirable location. He went on purpose with undesirable feelings. He's tired. He's thirsty. His body was crying out in agony. It would have been so much easier for Jesus to say, hey, can I have, can I have a drink? And to sit there and ignore the whole situation. Let me just rest. Don't bother me now. My brain is shot. I'm so tired, I can't even think straight let alone talk to you about spiritual truth. He went with undesirable human feelings. He went when he didn't feel like going. And he went to an undesirable person. You see, Jesus' conversation with this woman was very unusual. By the accounts of Everyone around Jesus, she was undesirable. But to Jesus, she was very much desirable because he knew he was going to be dying on the cross to pay for her sin. Jesus loved her. And this response revealed why Jesus saw the location, his own feelings, and the person as all truly desirable. He saw the potential of a soul trusting in him, while others only saw that which was undesirable. You can't talk to that person. Look at them. They won't listen to you. Look at their lifestyle. Look how unkind they are. They might sound something rude to you. They would never want to hear what you have to say to them. 
I'm so glad that Jesus thinks differently than we do. And that Jesus sees something in people we don't do, that we don't. And that Jesus loved the world and he gave his life for people like this Samaritan woman. Now, if Jesus did that, if Jesus gave his life and went to places that were so undesirable, what do you suppose he expects from us? Well, we can't be dirtied by them. We might hear something we shouldn't hear. They might not speak nice. They've got their own religion, they said. The story continues, and it's quite frankly an incredible ending that we'll get to in two weeks. Suffice to say, because the testimony of this woman, many came to trust in the Messiah. Because of Jesus' love for the undesirable, many came to find salvation in Him. So what's the purpose of the church? Well, the purpose of the church is to meet together, to dress up real nice and to bring your Bible to church and sing these songs and smile at each other and then go back to your wicked life. That's the purpose of the church, right? The purpose of the church is to seclude ourselves from reality and to get over there as a little cloister and to be nice to each other and find a place where we just love each other and then go back and try to face this horrible world. Or perhaps the Lord has entrusted the church to demonstrate His love to the world and to see what the rest of the world cannot see. That's that Jesus loves them and Jesus died for them. And Jesus loves the most undesirable person. After all, he loved us. Jesus was talking to whom? Seriously? It may be, say, it may be said sometime, and you might be criticized. You were talking to whom? Don't you know how that could affect your testimony? You mean being like Christ? I guess so. Let's take this morning and make the main character in the story not the woman. Let's make the main character Jesus. And let's keep our eyes focused upon what Jesus did and the enormous heart that Jesus had for this woman. And let's ask God for that same kind of love for the people that right now we might be calling undesirable. And that God might give us a love for them as well. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your undescribable love. We recipients are so unworthy. Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Lord, we have thanked you so many times and we've sung about it for so long and praised you that sometimes we take it for granted. Lord, you did die for us, just like you died for the world. And today we were reminded that you have eyes to see people differently than we do. And so remove the scales 
Remove the pride, the arrogancy from us that we might see people as you do, lost on their way to an eternal flame. Give us your love. Open our eyes, Lord, to hurting people, people who need to hear the gospel, and give us the boldness to speak. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I wonder this morning, when you came in today, did you come knowing 100% for sure that you know you're going to heaven when you die? Do you know that? We're all gonna die someday. Do you know for sure that you'll go to heaven? If not, I would count it a privilege to be able to pray for you. Oh, I'd never embarrass you, I'd never call you out, but I'd pray for you. Is there anyone here this morning who would say, Pastor Outler, I don't know for sure that I'm going to heaven when I die. I'd sure like to know, would you pray for me? Who would put that hand up so I can see it? Nobody else, just me. I can pray for you. Anybody? Pastor, pray for me. I don't know for sure that heaven is my home, but I want to know. Please pray for me. Anyone like that? I wonder, with nobody looking around, has the Spirit of God spoken to your heart this morning? And like my heart, has the Holy Spirit convicted you Spirit of God speaking to your heart right now? Would you respond to Him and ask His help to see you see people the way He does? And then ask Him to give you the boldness to share His love with the world. Dear Lord Jesus, we are so indebted to you for so many things. Thank you for dying on the cross, and thank you for raising again three days later. Lord, thank you for this time we've spent in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you might do a continued work as we love, long to serve you, for we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.